0: Leading saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning.
1: Hello and welcome to my study. Come in, uh, have a seat. As always, I'd like to introduce uh, the gentleman to my right, my valet, Wilkinson. He assists in these uh, productions by uh, pulling reference material from the study shelves and reading for us any uh, direct quotes we use. Pleased to meet you. So, we'll be dispensing with the mailbag segment we've been opening with, as it's uh, rather a special occasion this time, and I have a bit of music to set the mood... Very nice, sir. Thank you. As you may have guessed, this episode marks the one-year anniversary of Bone and Sickle. Wilkinson and I are very happy to have been able to bring you these shows for a year now, and do hope you've all been enjoying what we uh, do. Very special indeed. I've even baked a rum cake for the occasion. Yes, we'll be digging into that after the show. And I've laid out the good silver. And you'll be bringing up uh, one of the better bottles from the cellar, I hope? Certainly. And if I may,
0: sir, I know you weren't expecting it, but if you'll permit me, I do have a sort of surprise birthday gift to present to you. Something mailed in by one of the fans. Mailed in? Yes. Uh, From someone out of state. Not to the house, no, no, no. Uh, not to the private address, to my post office box. Okay. It's for both of us, for the show, and I thought this is a good occasion. It's something
1: handmade. Handmade? Yes, from a fan. All right, I certainly didn't expect this. You could be so secretive. It's just... It's frightening sometimes, I'm just never knowing.
0: Here. Uh, it's wrapped. Don't worry. I already opened it and re-wrapped it just to be sure, to know what I'd be presenting.
1: Okay. its it a picture? Looks like a picture.
0: Just open it.
1: Uh. I'm sorry. I I just need to concentrate. It's, well, it's obviously supposed to be us. Did it arrive in that frame? Yes. Hmm. I look Mediterranean. And why do you have a hump? I believe he was after
0: a sort of our host look, and I would be a sort of Igor.
1: Anyway, I thought
0: it was very imaginative.
1: It's very nice, but I want it destroyed. You can burn it in the ash pit behind the pond. It would be nice to have a bonfire anyway, as it's a festive occasion. I'll watch from the window, and then we can have rum cake. Well, well, of course, sir. As you like, sir. Let's do the show. Episode 25 Death by Mother. I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. So, uh, as I was saying, it's been a full year of shows, and I was never sure how long we'd keep doing these episodes, and honestly, it still remains a matter of uh, speculation, which uh, brings us to Patreon. Bone and Sickle only survives thanks to the generosity of our donors, so if you'd like to keep seeing these episodes turn up on a regular, bi-monthly basis, I'd do hope you'll consider a pledge. I'll uh, have more details on rewards, donation levels, and all that after the show. And many thanks to those who have been supporting us thus far. And I do have another disclaimer this time around. There's some rather awful material discussed this episode, as you may have guessed. But... uh, Much of it's uh, strictly mythological or folkloric, so certainly no worse than the uh, countless uh, true crime podcasts out there, but it may touch on issues that some find sensitive, so you've been warned. Try to stop La Llorona. The Weeping Woman It's a folk town.
0: To some, <laughs> the curse of La Llorona.
1: So here we are, arriving close to Mother's Day, and not too long after the April release of uh, The Curse of La Llorona. Uh, The film makes use of the Latin American folklore of La Llorona, or the weeping one, uh, the ghost of a mother tormented by guilt for drowning her own children. Uh, Despite having a, a tangential connection to the Conjuring franchise, the film did rather poorly at the box office, and... Uh, nearly every view I find mentions a sad dependency on jump scares. Nonetheless, it's a good place for us to start with our topic.
0: The Curse of the Crying
1: Woman. And uh, there's another film by that same name out there. It wasn't a remake, it's uh, from Mexico, 1963, and uh, does perhaps have a bit more in the way of atmosphere if you're jump scares. Um, there's a sort of black and white uh, gothic sense to it, particularly reminds me of uh, Mario Bava's Black Sunday, so maybe something to check out, and another use of the myth. And there's uh, also this song from 1941 that's since been associated with uh, Dio de los Muertos, uh, called La Llorona. Ay, 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 Llorona. Llorona tu eres mi I thought I might use it as background to our discussion, but since the film Coco, Disney's film, made uh, such prominent use of it, it feels a bit Disneyfied to me now, so instead let's listen to a recording of La Llorona herself, something posted to YouTube which alleges to be the actual sound of the ghost. There's quite a few more of those on YouTube if you uh, care to look. Uh, both films and the song necessarily spin their own independent stories around a legend that itself is uh, fairly simple. Now if you were to uh, look up La Llorona on Wikipedia you'll find a rather elaborate tale which I'll summarize. Uh, a woman, Maria, from a humble Mexican village weds a man of higher station over the objections of uh, her in-laws. They have two sons. The husband begins traveling, spending less time with his family and uh, losing affection for his wife. He eventually brings home a younger lover who will replace Maria. And so in a fit of blind rage, Maria drags their boys to a river and drowns them. Later realizing what she's done, she fruitlessly wanders the bank, searching and weeping for her dead children. She herself is soon found dead along those same banks, and in the afterlife is condemned to continue her weeping and her searching. Now, uh, I don't believe Wikipedia makes a definitive case in presenting all these details as uh, universal elements, particularly the mother being named Maria, the class differences and unhappy in-laws, or uh, the various stages of the couple's emotional attachments, which uh, Wikipedia chooses to detail. But if we remove these uh, elements, essentially the modern version of the tale is this. A jealous wife drowns the couple's children to punish her husband, dies regretting it, and as a ghost wanders the earth weeping and searching for her children. There you have it. One other aspect of the tale that we'll explore more uh, later is that this ghost wants to snatch children to replace her own, and uh, the figure therefore is used by uh, parents as a sort of uh, bugaboo to keep uh, their children in line. It seems likely that the raw folklore of a uh, child snatching spirit was later uh, augmented with this uh, romantic backstory. If uh, you go to earlier sources, these uh, details of an unhappy romance are not all consolidated into a single, tidy uh, narrative. And despite some parallels to other figures, La Llorona, under this name, at least does not show up in the uh, printed record till the uh, second half of the 19th century in Mexico, although the legend has also spread to other Spanish-speaking countries in the Americas. The earliest account I find is from 1857 by Mexican historian J.M. Escalante who describes her appearing on moonlit nights. She goes through the most remote
0: neighborhoods of the town
1: giving pitiful
0: screams. She reaches the walls of the cemetery and there she turns into smoke according to the general opinion, without anyone being able to investigate. Because when she screams, doors, windows, and shutters are closed as if by magic, and no one yields to the temptation to observe what happens on the street. As for the causes of the apparition and crying, they vary infinitely. La Llorona is sometimes a young lady in love who died on the eve of marriage, and brings to the groom the crown of white roses she was to wear at her wedding. It is sometimes the widow who succumbed to her misery and comes to mourn the fate of her unhappy little orphans. It is the dead wife who brings the kiss of farewell that she could not give to her husband. It is, finally, the wife who died by the hand of her husband, overcome with jealous rage, and who now appears in the world to lament her unfortunate end and to protest her innocence.
1: More examples. A 1908 book by Catholic travel writer William Harris has her seeking her two female children by the names Rita and Anita, whom she does not seem to have killed herself. Uh, He relates a tale told of a man named Diego who sees the figure wearing a white shawl which she lifts to reveal a
0: wormy grinning skull and little balls of blue fire for eyes then she brought her skull near to his face and opened her fleshless jaws and blew into diego's face a breath so icy cold that he dropped down like a dead man
1: The original folklore was uh, also subject to creative uh, literary reworking. There's an 1860 poem by uh, Manuel uh, Carpio that uses the name, but here she's actually a wife murdered by her husband. And uh, another revision came in 1887 with the historical novel La Llorona by uh, José Marroquí, in which the uh, spirit is portrayed as that of an Indigenous uh, pre colonial figure. According to this notion, La Llorona is connected to uh, one or more of these Aztec figures. Uh, first, there are the uh, Cicuetateo. Uh, these are women deified by their deaths during childbirth who uh, acted as escorts to the sun in its daily journey. Uh, one of the forms by which they are represented was that of a skeletal figure with breasts and their visits to earth every 52 days were greatly feared. Food offerings were left at crossroads to dissuade the Siku Tateo from snatching away earthly children. Because of the drowning element of the story, a connection to one of the uh, rain and water goddesses, Chau who is also associated with childbirth, has also less tentatively been proposed. But then the uh, drowning element hasn't even been defined as part of the light Llorona myth uh, by 1857. So trying to make connections like this is uh, all very speculative. We simply don't have any traceable historical thread, but we do have uh, lots of interesting parallels Now, I I won't go out on a limb to make this connection, but it's even been suggested that La Llorona might be traced to stories brought by German settlers. Uh, Perhaps this isn't so crazy, given the uh, large influx of Germans in the 1830s that brought, uh, for instance, the accordion uh, to Mexican music. Um, In any case, there is a story similar to that of La Llorona associated with the uh, Hohenzollern Castle in Baden-Württemberg. Uh, that of a ghost known as the uh, Frau, the white lady, who is said to be uh, the spirit of a widowed countess who longed to marry one of the Hohenzollern nobles. When the intended, whom we'll call Albrecht, although it's not entirely clear who it was, uh, got word of the woman's desire, he cryptically commented that he would gladly marry the countess. If it were not
0: for four eyes
1: between us, Assuming this referred to her two offspring being an obstacle to this uh, marriage she so uh, madly desired, the Countess was said to have immediately murdered the two children by driving a knitting needle into their skulls, of all things. And apparently that was not what the uh, would-be groom had in mind, and the Countess died and was damned in the afterlife to wander ...weeping through the halls of the castle.
0: I beg you in the name of the god you hold dear... ...please let me touch once more those poor innocent bodies. No, and don't ask again! It's useless! Nothing is possible anymore!
1: You're hearing an argument between Jason of Argonaut's fame... ...and Medea, who has killed their children in an act of vengeance... It's from a 1969 version of the Euripides play, Medea, uh, by Pier Paolo Pasolini. Uh, it's not quite a horror film, or actually even a reliable telling of uh, Euripides' story, but it does provide you with some nice background music, I think. Euripides' play begins sometime after Jason, with the aid of Medea's magic, has obtained the Golden Fleece. In fact, Jason has already abandoned Medea, uh, intending to take a new wife, Glauca, daughter of Creon, king of Corinth. She's to be banished from Corinth with but one day remaining for her to enact her terrible vengeance. Uh, She sends her children to deliver a wedding gift to her rival, Uh, a lovely but uh, lethally enchanted crown and finely spun gown. Uh, Euripides has a character recount the working of this enchanted gift shortly after the victim tries it on.
0: Froth rose up into her beautiful mouth and then, then her skin was flushed dry of all its blood. Her eyes began to roll back upward. The golden crown suddenly spewed forth a strange flame around her head, burning it, devouring it, and the fine gown, the two gifts your children gave her, began to eat away at the tender white flesh of the poor girl. She jumped out of her throne and ran like a bundle of fire, shaking her head, her hair, shaking it this way and that, struggling to rip the crown off her poor head. But the crown stayed there, immovable, And as she shook her head, the burning blaze grew doubly fierce. Her face, her beautiful face, was gone, and from top to bottom she was a chaos of blood and flames. Her flesh, her flesh had peeled off her bones while the poison sped upon it, like the tears of a pine tree roll off its bark, a most horrible sight.
1: And when they return, Medea steals herself to then take the children's lives which uh, mercifully happens offstage. Shortly after she has stabbed them, Jason appears, but Medea escapes with the children's corpses on the chariot of the sun god Helios. An effect that would have been uh, realized in those days by uh, one of the Greek theatrical cranes I mentioned in our Cave Witches episode.
0: The victory I shall have over my enemies will be splendid. Now I will do what I must do, and I will have a just revenge.
1: Returning again to La Llorona, there's also this aspect that uniquely associates her with the dangers of particular rivers. In a 1917 book, A Year of Costa Rican Natural History, for instance, I find her described thus.
0: Every river has Girona who is always moaning and crying for her little son drowned in the
1: river. Now, there's an interesting family of modern American legends that likewise attaches stories of children's uh, drownings or deaths to particular rivers or actually bridges crossing those rivers. They're called crybaby bridges because rather than the weeping mother, it's the sound of the drowned infants that lingers on after death. The children are not always intentionally thrown by their mothers into the waters. Uh, Quite often it's uh, presented as an accident. And when the mother does throw her offspring into the river, usually it's an unwed mother attempting to rid herself of an unwanted child rather than an act of vengeance. The uh, oldest versions of these crybaby bridge tales, uh, those from an era when the social stigma uh, on on unwed mothers was greater, uh, often follow uh, this pattern. Crybaby Bridges are particularly plentiful in Ohio, with uh, one count finding as many as two dozen. Uh, They can also be found in Maryland, New Jersey, Virginia, South Carolina, Indiana, Illinois, Texas, and Oklahoma, and there are probably some others that are appearing even as I speak. Uh, The legend seems to have appeared in the 1920s, a time when cautionary tales like this responded to a changing moral landscape. And then in the uh, 1950s and 60s, with the growing independence of teens seeking adventures in their cars, these sites became destinations for thrill seekers eager for a spooky story told in a spooky setting. Uh, The number of Crybaby Bridge sites exploded in the 1990s as these stories were first shared online. Nocturnal visits to these bridges, known as legend tripping, almost invariably, involves the telling of the story and some sort of ritual that invokes the infant's spirits, usually something like stopping the car in the middle of the bridge and honking the horn, say, three times. In more than one location, legend trippers are told that dusting the car with baby powder will allow the spirits to manifest themselves with tiny handprints left in the powder. Now, some early accounts of La Llorona represent her as uh, killing her children, not as a vengeful act, but to cover up a secret shame. From the uh, 1910 book, uh, Legends of the City of Mexico.
0: The beginning of her was so long ago that no one knows when was the beginning of her. But it is known, certainly, that at the beginning of her, when she was a living woman, she committed bad sins. As soon as ever a child was born to her, she would throw it into one of the canals that surround the city, and she would drown it. And she had a great many children, and this practice in regard to them she continued for a long time.
1: We also find the ghosts of unwanted children dispatched by their mothers in a couple of old Scottish and English ballads. The first we'll discuss is called either uh, The Cruel Mother or The Greenwood Side or even The Lady of York. It may come from Scotland but was first published as a broadside in London in uh, 1638. It occasionally is sung in Ireland, and also exists in an Appalachian version on this side of the Atlantic. Oh, she'd have better been dead down by the Greenwood side. Many variations exist, but generally the song tells of an unmarried woman, often from York, who gives birth to two children, usually boys, in the woods or in the Greenwood side, as the song has it. In some versions, she's dressed in scarlet or wears a scarlet ribbon in her hair something that comes in handy for her next deed. I hope you can understand the Scottish. She's
0: taken a ribbon for her
1: hair And she's choked at them till they're She's choked at them till they're
0: by the greenwood side
1: In other versions, if she has the ribbon, she merely ties the children up, and then...
0: She took out her wee pen life, allily oh, oh, There she took those sweet babes' like down by the greenwood sidey. She wiped the blade against her shoe, allily oh, aloney. Oh, the more she rubbed the rhetoric crew, down by the greenwood side.
1: She buries the bodies and leaves the woods, but will be haunted by the deed. As she walked out one moonlit night, all alone,
0: alone, she saw two babes all dressed in white, all
1: down by the She tells them, if they were hers, she would dress them in fine clothes, silk or scarlet being mentioned often. The children reject this expression of maternal instinct. Oh, mother, oh, mother, and we were yours, honorly and lonely.
0: Who was our own hearts, but down by the greenwood side, e-o.
1: realizing these are her children now on the other side, she asks if they know her fate. And most versions of the song agree on their answer. Mother, oh, mother, it's hell for
0: you. Down by the greenwood side, e-o.
1: There are also some strange versions in which the spirit children foretell her having seven more years on earth before this uh, fate in hell, or only seven years of penance in hell, or in some particularly odd and perhaps older versions, they detail a series of penances such as seven years as a fish, seven as a stone, or the clapper of a bell. The ballad's even been adapted as a rather ghoulish children's ring game song uh, that's been observed in British schoolyards as late as the 1970s. This version is usually called The Lady Dressed in Green and includes the same murder of a newborn, a single newborn, in this case with a penknife, as well as the same problem, getting blood off the knife.
0: The more she washed, the more she washed, there there of...
1: Two children stand in the center of the ring representing the baby and Mrs. Green, and then...
0: There came a knocking on.
1: Children impersonating the Bobbies attempt to break into the ring and capture Mrs. Green, at which point she must offer her confession.
0: She said, I killed my only son. She said, I killed my only son. Down by
1: Another song which shares uh, this theme and verses or elements of The Cruel Mother is The Well Below the Valley which was first set down in print in the 1800s, but is often thought to be rooted in much older medieval traditions. Another name for it is the Maid and the Palmer. Palmer being a pilgrim from the Holy Land who often carried palms folded in the shape of a cross as a token of the journey. The story told, uh, the palmer appears at a well where he asks the maid for a cup from which to drink. She says she has none, but the palmer insists she'd produce one if her lover asked. The maid denies ever having had a lover, but the stranger is somehow gifted with the knowledge that she has indeed already had a lover, in fact six, and had children by each. He also reveals that she has killed all six of those children, and providing a few further details. There's two buried
0: neat the kitchen floor, the well known in the valley Another two by the stable door, the well known in the valley Another two just beside the well, the well known in the valley And all
1: of them outside the graveyard wall Recognizing the Palmer as a holy figure, the maid asks how She might atone for her crimes, and the song enumerates a number of strange penitential transformations like those in The Cruel Mother, the seven years as the clapper of a bell, a stone, etc. And some versions mention seven to lead an ape in hell. Apparently, it's not an uncommon Elizabethan expression, which we don't really know what it means, but we assume something like being married to an ape, so being cursed in this case to be an ape's husband in Hell yet. The song is believed to have uh, traveled to England with the Danes and there are a number of uh, quite similar Scandinavian or German songs which identify the woman at the well uh, instead as the figure of the Samaritan woman Christ meets at the well. It's a biblical episode in which Jesus similarly uh, displays knowledge of the hidden sins of a woman. It's the same story at the root of the old gospel song. Jesus met the woman at the well, first recorded in the 1940s. Oh, the the well. oh, and and uh, opening later, covered by someone we've heard in our Ghastly Saint Stories episode.
0: And he's told her everything.
1: I'll have links to all these songs on the website so that you can review them yourself and commit them to memory for Mother's Day. There was one other aspect of La Llorona I promised to get back to, namely the figure's tendency to snatch away children and drown them. Her uh, motivation here is either uh, that she mistakes these children for her own or that she begrudges other women the happiness of motherhood. The ancient Greeks themselves had a similar mythological character in the Lamia, a figure uh, I mentioned briefly in our ancient necromancy episode. There are uh, a few varied stories associated with her, most of which represent her as a particular threat to children. In one, she is originally a beautiful mortal with whom uh, Zeus falls in love. In revenge, his wife Hera punishes Lamia by either destroying her children or causing Lamia to do so herself. And after this, Lamia becomes a sort of child-hunting monster. An additional curse Hera lays upon her is that of constant sleeplessness. Zeus relieves her sleeplessness, though it quite some price by allowing lamia to remove her own eyes the figure in art can be recognized by her displaced eyes and is also often portrayed as half serpent from the waist down another story presents her as a libyan queen who orders soldiers to hunt down children and whose moral evil transforms her appearance into that of a monster By the first century, the child-snatching Lamia was already being employed by parents as a threat to keep children in line, as La is today. Uh, She is specifically said to devour children rather than drown them. By the uh, early Middle Ages, the Lamia was uh, roughly equated with the Strigae, both used as uh, words for witches. By the 15th century, when the notion of witches' sabbaths evolved, it seems the Lamia's child-eating habit was transferred to the notion of witches at these gatherings sacrificing and feasting on babies. There are a couple final stories I'd like to present in which we have both the idea of cannibalizing children and mothers killing their own. The first is from the Germanic Folsung saga, the story of the Folsung clan, which includes the hero Siegfried, or Sigurd, A version of this, the Nibelungenlied, uh, represents the legends upon which Wagner based his uh, Ring Cycle. These stories mythologize certain real-world events, such as the 5th century defeat of the Germanic Burgundians by the Huns under Attila. Our particular episode involves the Princess Kriemhild, or Gudrun in our version, and takes place after the betrayal and death of Sigurd, whom Gudrun loved. As a political alliance and to exact revenge on Sigurd's murderer, Gudrun uh, marries Atli, the king of the Huns, whom she loathes. In uh, older tellings of this story, she expresses this loathing in a unique way. Once Atli has served her vengeful purpose, she kills their two sons and then, at a feast, in the words of the old saga, The dreadful
0: woman gave dainties
1: withal to the lord's pale with fate,
0: laid strange word upon Atli. The hearts of thy sons hast thou eaten, sword-dealer, all bloody with death and drenched with honey.
1: So, yes, she feeds him his own sons. There is a parallel story from a first-century Roman work, book six of Ovid's mythological poem, The Metamorphoses. It's a story of Tereus, the Thracian king, his wife Procne, her sister, and the couple's son, Itis. In this story, the married king comes to desire his wife's sister, Philomela, He goes to her father to ask for her hand, telling him that Procne has died. The heartbroken father agrees, sending Philomena back to Thrace, accompanied by an armed guard. Tereus manages to have the guards thrown overboard during their sea journey and rapes Philomena, afterwards cutting out her tongue so that she can never reveal the deed. Back in Thrace, however, Philomena manages to reveal her secret by weaving messages into a tapestry that is sent to Procne. This is where the unfortunate son, Etius comes in. Ovid provides us with Procne's ruminations here.
0: Though he calls me mother, why can she not call me sister? Look at the husband. This is unworthy of you. Affection is criminal in a wife of Tereus. Without delay, she dragged Etis off, as a tigress does, an unweaned fawn. As they reached a remote part of the great palace, Procne, with an unchanging expression, struck him with a knife in the side close to the heart, while he stretched out his hands, knowing his fate, at the last, crying out, "'Mother! Mother!' and reaching out for her neck. That one wound was probably enough to seal his fate, but she opened his throat with the knife." While the limbs were still warm and retained some life, they tore them to pieces. Part bubbles in bronze cauldrons, part hisses on the spit, and distant rooms drip with grease.
1: Then Tereus is invited to a very special feast and...
0: Fills his belly with his own child, and in the darkness of his understanding cries that she is here. Procne cannot hide her cruel exultation. She cries, You have him there, inside, the one you asked for. He looks around and questions where the boy is, and then, while he is calling out and seeking him, Philomela springs forward, her hair wet with the dew of that frenzied murder, and hurls the blood-stained head of Edis in his father's face. The Thracian king pushed back the table with a great cry, calling on the Furies, the snake-haired sisters of the Vale of Styx. Now, if he could, he would tear open his body and reveal the dreadful substance of the feast and his half-consumed child. Then he weeps and calls himself the sepulcher of his unhappy son and now pursues with naked sword the daughters of Pandion.
1: At this point, however, the gods of Olympus intervene, turning the unhappy group of mortals into birds. Terius is transformed into a hawk, Procne, a swallow, and Philomela into a nightingale. A merciful ending, perhaps, though not entirely resolving the situation for the tongueless Philomela. While the male nightingale is known for its song, the female is unable to utter a sound. I hope everyone's been enjoying these shows we've been putting out for a year now and that you might have the uh, opportunity to share episodes with friends. Um, We particularly appreciate reviews as these are the best way to raise the show's visibility on uh, Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you've left us a review, by all means, uh, let me know and we'll give you a little shout out. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter and Instagram along with uh, show notes with uh, plenty of images and video links to the uh, film trailers, clips, and music and songs I use in the program. Uh, Music and sound design otherwise is all original for this show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including uh, exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the show Soundscape, you hear in the background, and my uh, Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and also adulation. Uh, donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is honestly the sole support that pays for the 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. I'd like to thank Josh Beck, Michael Packer, Sean Sutherland, uh, Leonardo Rolla, and Molly Van Overhill for becoming new patrons, and uh, thank uh, Alexis Stepling, Eric, Racer, and uh, Marie Malicote who have uh, also recently posted show reviews. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening.